There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, it's David Hunter here. This is the first of a two-part wrap episode for 2022. And we'll be summing up all the pearls of wisdom from our guests in a two-part series. But before we get into this episode, I just wanted to thank you all for your support over the last three years. It would mean a lot to us if you gave us a rating on your podcast provider or you shared the podcast with a friend. It's really a privilege for us to have the opportunity to share insights about osteoarthritis with you. And we truly hope that you're benefiting. We've taken brief clips from a few different episodes to highlight key messages that we've tried to provide you in 2022. To start with, we kicked off season three with a podcast with Shannon Mahalko from Wake Forest University. Shannon provided some excellent tips for behavior change including how we can tailor our interventions for individuals. People don't do what you tell them to do. Let's bring it back to why did you come out for this program in the first place? Or why did you come in for this visit with me as a healthcare practitioner? What matters to you? What do you value? And what I understand, everybody values different things. A lot of people value control for example, and control that sense of control. If we can play into that and help people understand, for example, how physical activity can ultimately help them control their pain, then maybe you've got the buy-in that you need to make it simple. I think that preferences would include type of activity, but it would also include like, when would you want to do this? Where, where might you want to do it? And let's back up uh, even one more step. You know, how do you think, thinking about outcome expectations, if you were to regularly engage in a physical activity program, what outcomes do you think you would get from that, that are then important to you? And so, you know, I think all of that together with, would you like to do this with someone else, with the group? Would you rather do it by yourself? All of those pieces that the plan kind of then builds itself together as you determine all of these pieces of it, what kind of foods do you enjoy eating? In our programs, it's never that any food is taboo because then people get their thoughts really focused on 
chocolate, 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 if we say you can't have chocolate. So we, we don't do that. We don't clog up people's, we call it their thought bubbles really with things like that and give people choices that then they feel the control to make the choices together with the provider or the interventionist to then sit down and make realistic goals again, that the person's in charge of with the guiding hand of the expert who knows what a realistic expectation might be and can help people frame those in a way that actually are attainable goals. Shannon also spoke to us about the importance of monitoring goals and tracking progress. We can start talking about building in self-regulation and how do you monitor? How do you keep track? Make yourself some charts, show yourself on a daily basis, keep some logs about what you're eating, you know, for, for weight management. And it, it's hard if anyone has ever kept a diary or a log of what you eat, it's a hard thing to do, but it is so successful. It's one of the best. If you want to talk about strategies, I mean, it's hard to know how to change what you're eating if you don't know what you're currently eating. And so everyone thinks they know, but you don't know until you write it down and take a look at it over time. I recommend keeping some, you know, it doesn't have to be in your, your purse at all times where you're filling, but over the course, I keep track and just, you know, keep a little notebook to remind myself of, you know, what I've done over the course of a week, maybe not every day, but just to see where I'm going with that. On episode two, Marius Henriksen joined us to talk about his paper comparing exercise and education to saline injections for knee osteoarthritis. This study was a randomized controlled trial which aimed to reduce the biases associated when comparing exercise to a no-intervention group. We randomized 206 patients to either exercise and education or the salt water, and it was one-to-one almost, so it was 102 versus 104 participants. And uh, the exercise and education was the GLAD program, which is invented here in Denmark and now uh, implemented worldwide in many countries, including Australia. It's a eight week program where you receive two to three educational sessions. In our study, we did two because the third one is optional, where people are educated about osteoarthritis, what it is and how you can manage it with a focus on exercise. And after that, they go into a six-week exercise program, exercising with a physiotherapist on, in a group two times per week for six weeks. And the saltwater group had a total of four injections of five milliliters each time, and it was given with two weeks apart. So that was week one, three, five, and seven. And then we did the measurements before. And after the eight weeks, so that would be in week nine and a relatively short further follow-up at 12 weeks, so three months in total. It was controversial in large part because the exercise was found to be equivalent to what we would typically consider a placebo that has relatively large contextual effects in the way of a saltwater injection. We saw that the two groups changed on a uh, 0 to 100 pain score about eight or between eight and 10 points in both groups. So, so that would be what I would say clinically, just a clinically relevant uh, difference within each group. And then the difference between the groups was around these two points with a very small confidence interval, which is, is used to assess this equivalence thing. So we are quite certain that the difference is quite small. 
In episode 15, we had the pleasure of being joined by Lynn March to discuss the massive global burden of osteoarthritis and the work that she's doing in that space to better understand the impact of the disease. Well, osteoarthritis is incredibly common in the estimates from the burden of disease that they've come up with. At least 5% of the total global population has osteoarthritis. So that's many millions and millions of people with osteoarthritis globally, and it really affects every nation of the world. Although osteoarthritis has been thought of historically as a mechanical disease, we now have evidence that osteoarthritis has many features of inflammation as we learn from Tom Appleton on episode three. In rheumatoid arthritis, we're often talking about systemic inflammation. So inflammation that can even be measured with indicators in say routine blood work. In osteoarthritis, we're really thinking more at the local joint level. If it's a knee or if it's a, let's say a hand joint, is there inflammation in the lining? And so clinically, just at the most basic level, that just means a swollen joint. But I think we also appreciate as rheumatologists and other musculoskeletal health providers that there are nuances to the amounts of inflammation and the different features. Lisa Kaleso from McMaster University joined us on episode seven to discuss her work in osteoarthritis pain and how osteoarthritis affects everyone in a different way. We learned that knee osteoarthritis can be characterized as constant or intermittent. Yeah, so a few years ago, it was actually Dr. Jillian Hawker out of the University of Toronto here, conducted many focus groups with people with knee osteoarthritis and asked them to describe their experiences. And from that study, they were able to say that people described intermittent pain, constant pain, or a mix of the two. And they further related those descriptors to where they were in the disease process. So people who had intermittent pain tended to be more early on, and they described it as being sharp, and it kind of came and went, and was often related to activities that put some type of stress on their knee. So maybe somebody goes out for a jog or maybe they've spent the afternoon gardening and pushing on a shovel. And then they described that as they kind of moved along and the disease got a little bit worse, the pain would become more constant. And that they described as being more achy and dull in nature and wasn't necessarily related to any particular activities. It was just more there all the time. And then as a further progression, that intermittent pain would come back and kind of overlay on top of the constant pain. But now it would be a little bit different in that it would still be sharp, but it would be quite intense and it would be very unpredictable. So it wouldn't be related to loading the knee. It could just show up randomly. And people describe that as being a bit distressing because they couldn't necessarily relate it to their activities or what they had done. So those were kind of the three groupings and according to disease progression that came of that. And they were able to create a questionnaire to quantify those experiences. And so we did some studies that have used that questionnaire and assessed these different pain patterns in different ways. We also spoke about 
Total Joint Replacements with Alana Ackerman on episode 13. She spoke about the cost effectiveness of these procedures. They're very cost effective. There's lots of studies that have found that even though they're expensive procedures, because people experience such large improvements in their quality of life and pain function that on a big picture level, they can be considered to be cost effective. Alana also spoke about the outcomes following hip and knee replacement. People's individual circumstances are are different and people will individually have slightly different outcomes after joint replacement. But by and large, most people experience improvement after surgery. For hip replacement surgery, there's a definite very early improvement in pain and in function. And so, you know, I've had many patients who've said to me in the first couple of days after surgery, you know what, that really deep aching pain, that pain I've had in my thigh, the side of my hip, it's gone now after the hip replacement. Yes, I've still got that sort of fresh pain or that new pain around the wound. And obviously that's to be expected, just had surgery, um, but it's not the same kind of pain that I've had. And they're able to get up and moving. And within the first couple of weeks, they're walking pretty good distances. And by six weeks, they're feeling pretty comfortable with their new hip replacement and doing most of the activities that they need to be doing independently in their daily lives. With knee replacements, it's a slightly different trajectory. And that's for a couple of different reasons, I guess. So the pain tends to be a bit more, how should we say it, David, maybe a bit more acute, I think, in the early days after knee replacement. So maybe higher levels of pain with knee replacement in the early days. There's also commonly a lot of swelling and tightness around the replaced knee in those first few weeks. And sometimes I think that can come as a bit of a shock to patients too. So the knee can feel quite tight and stiff. And so the early days with knee replacement, it's really important that we get that pain control right and people are taking their prescribed medications at the right time so that they can you know, actively take part in their rehabilitation and do the exercises that we, we need them to do to regain their movement and strength. So knees, I would say that they're, they're on a, a period of improvement really over over the first six months in terms of the pain reducing and the knee range of movement improving. Chris Fatullo joined us again. Chris is an orthopedic surgeon and he spoke to us about the impact of body mass index on joint replacement, specifically on the knee, on episode 10. A much higher proportion of people who were receiving knee replacements had a high body mass index than those who weren't receiving it. So they're actually quite a lot higher and about two thirds or more, this is the Australian population, of people receiving joint replacements are either obese or overweight. So that's a BMI of over 25, uh, so the 30 or a BMI of 30 and above. And there's different classes of obesity, but basically as your weight goes up, your BMI obviously goes up and then your uh, risk of symptomatology increases as well. With any surgery, but particularly knee replacement, Operating on people who are overweight or obese, this is a risk of complications. So in the short term, their risks of infections and blood clots are higher. And their risk of revision, that is where we have to redo the surgery due to prosthesis loosening, prosthesis infection, instability, all the sort of reasons that we often have to redo them, is higher in overweight patients and much, much higher in patients who are obese in the more obese they are, then the higher the risk of needing another operation. On episode four, we were joined by Jackie Whitaker, and we talked about prevention, including its definition. 
prevention is this interesting word, and I think it means different things to different people. So part of my training was in epidemiology. So when I think of prevention, I think of it from an epidemiological perspective. And it's really all the things that we can do to reduce the burden of a health condition on individuals and society. So that might mean anything from preventing risk factors or doing something to allow somebody who's been exposed to a risk factor to either not progress to the condition or uh, progress more slowly. But it might also be improving the function and reducing the disability of people that have the condition. So it's actually quite a large spectrum, prevent risk factors or identify people early on that have been exposed to a risk factor and intervene so they don't progress or they progress slower or actually working with people with the condition and doing everything we can to reduce the burden of that condition on them and society by making them more functional and reducing their disability. So it's very broad. We also spoke about risk factors for the development of osteoarthritis. I think there's been enough studies done on a couple of them that we can feel very confident that they are risk factors. And that is obesity or an increase in adipose tissue, fat tissue, as well as traumatic joint injury. Both of those are associated with an increased risk of osteoarthritis. But there are other things as well. We know that muscle weakness, I think there's more and more emerging evidence that weakness of certain muscles around the joint are risk factors for osteoarthritis. And probably the best evidence we have here is related to the quadriceps muscle or the muscle in the front of our thigh and knee osteoarthritis. But we also know that the shape of a joint influences how that joint deals with load. And we know that there are certain conditions are more prevalent when we're younger and our joints are growing that might lead to altered shape of the joint, which might set us up for osteoarthritis down the road. And then if we, I'm talking mostly here about modifiable factors in theory, we can modify muscle strength. We can modify whether or not somebody has a joint injury. In theory, we can modify obesity. We might be able to modify joint shape if we catch it young while the bones are still developing, or as a surgeon may also may be able to have some impact on that. And then the other thing that's talked a lot about are sort of like high impact sports and high occupational loading. And that's kind of a loaded conversation. The last thing I want people to think is that it's bad for you to weight bear or bad for you to do impact activities. But as with any activity or any posture or any position, real value comes from a diversity of loading and a diversity of postures and a diversity of movements. But it doesn't mean by any means that high impact things are bad, but you can imagine if you were doing them all the time and you hadn't really prepared the joint or the muscles around the joint to deal with those impacts, that could potentially be a problem. And there's a little bit of evidence for that. And then there's also non-modifiable factors, which are things that we may not be able to change. So we know for whatever reason that females have a higher risk of osteoarthritis. Now, we don't know if that's due to their biology, their sex, or if that's related more to sociocultural aspects of their identity, such as their gender. Most of it has looked at the biology piece and in particular looked at the piece around perimenopause and menopause. But I think that's something we're still trying to flush out. We also know that the older you are, the more likely you are to have osteoarthritis. So age is a risk factor. And there's evidence without a doubt that there are types of osteoarthritis that may have a, a genetic predisposition to them. And I would actually argue there's some evidence to suggest that certain types of knee injuries, there's potential that there's a genetic predisposition or at least a familial um, predisposition to those things. 
Yeah, so those are kind of the big ones that we talk about. On episode nine, Fiona Watt discussed post-traumatic osteoarthritis, that is, following an injury, and how that differs from what we typically describe as primary or idiopathic osteoarthritis, and her research in this important field. So post-traumatic osteoarthritis is the, the term we use for osteoarthritis that follows a significant joint injury. And an example of that would be, that someone may be familiar with, would be an anterior cruciate ligament rupture, like some footballers experience, or tears of the meniscus in the knee. And I'm giving examples in the knee because that's probably the most studied joint. But I think it's important to say that post-traumatic osteoarthritis can probably affect any of the joints that are affected by osteoarthritis in general. I think that the question about how it differs from more usual osteoarthritis, sometimes scientifically we call that idiopathic or primary osteoarthritis, is actually quite a hard one. We actually don't know the answer to that question. And that's that's quite a, a, a thing to say. But I mean, let, let me say, I think we all recognise that post-traumatic osteoarthritis happens in younger people. So from that point of view, it looks a bit different. There's a bit of discussion in the community about whether it's truly faster progressing, more aggressive or not. And I think that's actually difficult to say. We lack evidence. And of course, if you're watching for something, you see it more often than you, you do if you're not watching. So that's tricky. It's used as a model uh, of osteoarthritis. So I think there's some assumption in the community that there is some crosstalk between the two processes. But I think, you know, what I would say is that actually, you know, if you look at these, the endpoints of these processes, they look really, really similar. And I think we actually lack evidence as to whether they're similar or different. And that's one of the bits of, of the work that we're doing is actually to understand that better. Now, although the majority of research in osteoarthritis has focused on osteoarthritis in the joint between the tibia and femur in the knee, there are many people who also experience arthritis behind the kneecap, or what we call patellofemoral osteoarthritis. Marianka van Middelkoop joined us on episode 11 to discuss patellofemoral osteoarthritis and how those symptoms differ. Well, I think the typical one is people will say they have really pain around the patella, around the kneecap. And one of the activities that aggravates pain is, for example, walking stairs. So that is a really typical one for patellofemoral osteoarthritis. And in the Netherlands, I would say uh, cycling with headwind. There's one of these, those typical activities that will pain. But the difficulty is tasks as stair walking, getting out of a car or rising from bed, ascending stairs. These, these typical pain aggravating activities are common in patellofemoral pain patients. But you also see them yeah, in patients with knee OA. So that is also tibiofemoral OA. And that is the difficulty. There is such an overlap in symptoms between the um, OA in the patellofemoral joint or maybe also combined OA. So you have OA in both joints or only OA in the patellofemoral uh, joint. In episode 21... Michelle Hall spoke to us about differentiating hip osteoarthritis from knee osteoarthritis. I think difficulty getting in and out of the car, more so than people with knee problems. And as I said before, I think socks is actually quite a big one. You know, when we had people in the lab doing assessments, asked them to do that. It really got most people, they would experience pain doing that. And that was a real sort of telltale sign for us that, yes, that is likely to be hip osteoarthritis. Now, as most of you know by now, 
I'm not really a cat person. We're also really happy to hear that most of our guests this year were on Team Dog. 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 I have two. Dog. Uh, dogs, yes. Well, not a... Actually, I'm allergic to cats, so, uh, you yeah. know. Definitely dog. I've always had dogs, and then I inherited a cat, loved the cat, but I, I would say dog person. Oh, definitely dog. Now, our guests were very kind to share many words of wisdom for people living with osteoarthritis, including some of these following tips. It's important for the patients to take control of their conditions rather than handing over control to someone else. And as I said, you should do things that are not harmful to you. And actually, there are a lot of things you can do that does not cause serious damage to your joints. So, so try different things. If it works, it's good. If it doesn't work over two or three months, do something else. So, so live more and stay active is perhaps also a good thing to remember. Try to clear that thought train, if you will, and let your inner wisdom guide you to make the choices that will help you. There are so many wonderful strategies and behaviors from exercise to diet management, to being around others and enjoyable activities that can help with your pain and function. And the the sooner you start, the better. Our goal is to improve disease control, and that includes treating inflammation for sure. But the goal is to give you the best life possible while living with arthritis. And I think if we can rally around that goal and understand that that's an achievable goal, especially if we tackle multiple aspects of the disease, then I think we'll be further ahead. I guess I want people to understand is stay active no matter what stage of the disease you're in. And realize that doing so kind of ticks all the boxes on trying to figure out that complex pain piece. I think a lot of people who have osteoarthritis, or maybe they've had a knee injury and they know that, hey, you know what, my knee health isn't going to be what it was before that knee injury. There's two things. Number one, they believe they shouldn't load their joint. They shouldn't do impact activities. They shouldn't weight bear. And, and I would just say that is just such a false belief. Your cartilage needs to be loaded. That's how it stays healthy. And I would also say that you, you don't want to wait until you're in so much pain and disability to seek help. To me, the red flag of when you need to seek help is when you can't be physically active anymore. So if you've got pain or lack of confidence, or there's something going on with your knee or your hip that's stopping you from being who you want to be physically and actively, that's when you want to go and seek some help, whether help, whether it be a family physician or a physiotherapist or an athletic therapist or somebody that, that you trust that will send you in the right direction. Because there's no reason that you can't be physically active and have osteoarthritis. It just might, you might need the help of somebody else to figure out how to make that happen. But just because you're, you're experiencing pain with something doesn't mean you cannot be physically active. And it's really just figuring out with the help of others, how to get over that hump. When I'm sitting in clinic, seeing someone with osteoarthritis, I will generally say there is always something we can do. You know, it's really rare that people walk into the clinic and that we've tried absolutely everything. And actually, you know, because of the lack of information sometimes that's out there, because of some of the lack of interest that maybe some of the clinical community show this disease, generally there's something that can be done. And I think particularly early on, this notion that 
you know, you are not on a conveyor belt towards joint replacement. There's so much evidence that this disease, as you've heard, is, is reversible. And while we don't have all the treatments we'd like, there are a lot of things um, like exercise and like other therapies, particularly when given in combination, that can make a real difference. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for your continued support. It would mean so much to us if you could give us a rating on your podcast provider or share this podcast with a friend. Between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.